Are you ready to hear the word this morning? Open your Bibles to the book of Luke. Luke, I am your father. Glover train. And this morning we're going to go a couple more verses. We are... Uh, we're waiting at the station, and uh, the glory train hasn't come yet, so we're just taking our good old time going through this Bible verse by verse in this marvelous book of Luke. And I'm sitting down today because everyone else is sitting down, and, and why shouldn't I be able to sit down? Gosh, why don't I have to stand up? I can do whatever I want. Gosh. So, uh, a <laughs> few of you saw the movie. <laughs> Got no preaching skills. Focus, Greg. <laughs> My ADD is getting the better of me right now. I gotta focus in. We're reading from the TNIV version, Luke chapter 1. We're starting with verse 50. I'll just say that this is where Mary is uh, singing a song. It's called the Magnificat uh, in the traditional liturgy. And uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, she's just singing this great song. Uh, she is using here what's called proleptic speech. And what that means is that she is referring to things in the past that have happened and now applying them to the future as though they've already happened. We, you speak proleptically when you speak about the future as though it, it was already occurring. Um, it, it's, a, it's a song of faith. This is the, ki- the things we're seeing here is not really describing the world as it is, but describing the world as it shall be, as though it already is. That's proleptic speech. And I'm calling this message the great reversal. The great reversal. And Mary says this, God's mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. We talked about that last week. And now, here's how we, now Mary will describe how he scattered the proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And after Mary was finished singing the song, she stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then she returned home. And I want to focus our attention on this uh, clause here where it says, He brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. I want to pray for this message, and I also want us to pray for a few other matters. Uh, we're gathered here together as kingdom people who have got a kingdom authority through the power of prayer, right? And there's power in, in unity. And so I want us to use this weekend event here as an occasion to, uh, at least this weekend, uh, to pray for some needs. So can I ask you to stand one last time? And if there's a person next to you, would you, just, you don't have to know their name or anything, just grab their hand and join with me in prayer. You can pray as you feel led, but let, let's uh, unite our hearts and minds here in prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you that you have made us your kingdom people. And this body here at Woodland Hills is one expression of your global historical kingdom movement. And we thank you. That is a matter of your grace. And Lord, you've given us power to align our spirits with your spirit to see your will done on earth as it is in heaven through the power of prayer. So right now, Lord, we pray on behalf of our children, those precious, precious children that you have created through us and, and have given to us. And we pray blessing on the children's church, Lord. Uh, anoint the leaders in the children's church. Open up the little minds and the little precious hearts that they could uh, receive the truth of the gospel in a way that they can understand. Just be present over there. And Lord, for our youth, many of the youth are up at Trout Lake Camp. We pray, Lord, that that would be a, a wonderful retreat where, where, where some would really get the fire and would really get the flame and get the passion for the kingdom, Lord. And for other youth that are in our, uh, our, our uh, youth area this morning, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would sweep over them, anoint the preaching, anoint the worship, and just be glorified over there, Lord. We pray, Lord, for our country. We pray for our leaders, as you've commanded, to pray for justice and to pray for peace. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would be giving our leaders wisdom and a, a sense and a passion for justice and a, and a passion for peace and a wisdom for peace, Lord God. 
uh, Lord, just be moving in their lives and in their hearts, Lord God, to see the way clear, to be peacemakers, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. We pray, Lord God, for any who are here this morning who, who uh, have physical ailments, touch them, Lord. Let the healing power uh, go forth from your throne, even as the word's going forth. And for those who are suffering emotionally this morning, whether they're struggling with depression or anxiety or compulsive thoughts, uh, whatever their ailment is, Holy Spirit, would you just bring calmness and peace and encouragement and joy to them. Heal them emotionally, Lord. And for our families and for our marriages, Lord, we bring them before you and we ask that you be present there. How active the devil is trying to tear couples apart and families apart. But Lord, we ask that you would be our strong tower and surround our, our families uh, with, with your presence. In Jesus' name, we do warfare on behalf of them. In Jesus' name. And now, Lord, as the word goes forward, we pray that you'd open up our hearts and open up our mind and give us a boldness to call into question perhaps some fundamental presuppositions that we've inherited from our culture that are not of you. Let the word confront us and transform us that we may leave here as more thoroughly sold out kingdom people than when we came. That's your job, Lord. It's not my job. I can't do it. Lord, whatever comes out, just anoint it with your authority. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And uh, as, as I'm preaching, uh, be open to the possibility of the Holy Spirit just you know, putting it on your heart to uh, pray for the anointing. Just say, Lord, bless that. Lord, open up our minds and that the Holy Spirit is active here. Because if I'm talking and the Holy Spirit is, is, isn't active, uh, then we're wasting our time here. And uh, I don't want to be wasting our time. I want this to be a kingdom moment. So Holy Spirit, just be moving here. I want to start with this question. The passage says that, that he brought down rulers from the thrones and lifted up the humble. He filled the hungry, but he sent the rich away empty. Is Luke saying that all rulers are bad? That all people with political power are evil? Is he saying that all rich people are evil? Is he saying that all hungry people are good? One could get that impression. But I don't think that that's what's going on here. I mean, after all, uh, throughout history, there have been some good rulers, haven't there? Uh, there's been some good political, not many, but there's been some uh, that have been really good. So, David was said to be a good ruler in, in the Bible, and Solomon was supposed to be a good ruler. They weren't perfect. They, they had some major screw-ups, but who doesn't? Um, but they were pretty good. Gandhi, I think, was a great ruler. Uh, you know, so there, there's been good rulers throughout history, and there's been some wonderful r rich people throughout history. In fact, God made David very, very rich. God made Solomon very, very rich. God made Abraham very, very rich, and, and they're some of the heroes of the faith. Uh, and, and to this day, God blesses some people and uses them, people with a lot of wealth or a lot of power, uh, to really advance uh, his kingdom. So it doesn't seem like all, that the, the problem is with riches itself or with power itself. Here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, prideful in their innermost thoughts. Command them not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so very uncertain. But put your hope in God. Tell them to put their hope in God, who richly, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now note in the passage that Paul do doesn't say, command those lousy rich people not to be rich. He doesn't say that. What he says is, in fact, he acknowledges that, that everything they have has been given by God partly for their enjoyment. That's not a bad thing. What he does command them to do, however, and he uses the word command here, is to, however rich they are in their wealth, to be that rich in good deeds. To be asking the question, what can I do with the wealth that I have? There is a responsibility that goes along with being wealthy. But the problem isn't the wealth. The problem is, well, what do you do with it? Or the issue is, what do you do with it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, a, a passage that we uh, studied a couple weeks ago, uh, we read this. God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that, everybody say so that, so that. Here's, here's why he's able to bless you uh, with every blessing in abundance. So that by always having enough of everything, and that's your enjoyment part, you may share abundantly in every good work. 
Everything hangs on the soul of that. The problem isn't with the wealth. The problem is, are you paying attention with, to the soul of that? There's nothing wrong with being rich, and there's nothing wrong with having power, whether it's political power or some other domain of influence, so long as you remember the soul of that. So that, as we said a couple weeks ago, so that you may sow that. God gives it to you so that you may sow that to further his kingdom, to bless others. Whatever you've got is, yes, it's there for your enjoyment, but it's also there to sow, to sow in the life of somebody else. If you've got money, enjoy it and sow it. If you've got, if you've got political power or some other kind of influence in the world, wonderful, enjoy it and sow it. If you've got a great brain, use it for the kingdom, sow it. If you've got, you got a great personality, you've got a lot of charisma going on, use it for the kingdom. Don't just enjoy it. Give it away. Uh, whatever you have, however much or however little, uh, it's there for you to enjoy, but also for you to give away. So whatever the passage is saying here, it clearly is not saying that all rich people are bad or that all rulers are bad or that all hungry people are good. What is the passage saying then? Because it says that the rich will be brought down and sent away empty and the powerful will be brought down and the humble will be exalted. What does that mean? I want to bring out two principles here. The first principle that comes out of this passage is it's just one more reminder that the kingdom that we signed up for, kingdom people, is an upside-down kingdom. It is a topsy-turvy kingdom. It is a screwy, backwards, reversed kingdom. Everything about the kingdom is the opposite of what the world expects. When the kingdom shows up, as it has in the past, as it is in the present, and someday, as it will be exhaustively throughout the world, but as the kingdom shows up, everything in the world is turned on its head. Everything is, is, becomes upside down. Those who look like they're losers are actually shown to be winners. And those that everyone thought were winners turn out to be losers. Uh, the, the strong turn out to be weak, and the weak turn out to be strong. Those who you thought were very important turn out to be very unimportant. And those who everyone thought were very unimportant turns out to be very, turn out to be very, very important. The kingdom reverses everything. This is, this is what I mean by the great reversal. And we've already seen it in the narrative of Luke. Luke mentions the big shots of the world. Caesar Augustus. Ooh, Herod. Oh, these are big, big, important people. But in the narrative of the gospel, they only serve as calendar props. The only reason Luke mentions them is that they help him locate in history when these events occurred. They're, they're little date fixtures. That's the only thing that's important about them. The important people for this story are these women, which in the first century is already shocking. Men are always supposed to be the heroes. Here it's it, these two women. One's Elizabeth, and this other one, even more surprising, is this gal with the most common name in the first century coming from a town that was so small and insignificant, no one even knew about it, the town of Nazareth. Her name is Mary. And she's turning out to be the biggest hero so far. Everything about the kingdom gets reversed throughout the ministry of Jesus. The people that are supposed to get it don't get it, and the people that you never thought would get it, they got it. The Pharisees, the theologians, the ones with the PhD in theology, the experts, the ones that everyone looks up to, they don't have a clue what's going on. The prostitutes, though, do. Uh, the tax collectors, the drunkards, uh, they're hanging out with Jesus all over the place. They, they smell life on him. And they're hanging out with him. Wow, what a reversal. Everything is topsy-turvy. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, he teaches this. It's better to serve than to be served. What kind of a teaching is that? Uh, the weak will be strong, the strong will be wit or, uh, weak. The wise are fools, but the fools, they're wise. The godly turn out to be sinful. But those of you who thought were sinful, they're declared to be godly. Those who look like they're getting defeated, they're actually victorious. The people that you thought were victorious, they're the ones being defeated. The rich become poor and the poor become rich. Everything is reversed. It's an upside-down, screwy, I almost want to say insane kingdom. But what do you expect? I mean, it's a kingdom that's centered on a proclamation that the almighty God of the universe became a human being and died a God-forsaken hellish death on the cross for the people who were crucifying him. What kind of God flexes his omnipotent muscle by letting himself get crucified? This God does. And right when it looks like things are absolutely going as bad as possible, it turns out it's his finest hour. On the cross of Calvary, when it looks like he's losing, he's actually defeating the devil. He's, de he's defeating sin, death, and the grave on, by the act of getting crucified. What an odd, insane, reversed kingdom we're a part of. Which means this. 
If we're going to live authentically in the kingdom and think authentically in the kingdom, we've got to give ourselves a lobotomy. <laughs> uh, we need a brain transplant. Uh, we've got to wear very, very different spectacles if we're going to look at the world through kingdom eyes. Our value si- we've got to allow our value systems to be entirely turned upside down. All of the things the world counts as success have got to be reversed. They, they, they can be shown as failures. And we've got to reassess our life according to kingdom values. Here we find in this passage that we read this morning that money and success, money and, and, and power, which are the, the two things that the world most esteems in terms of criteria for success, they don't mean success at all. No, you can be losing with that. Success would rather be defined in terms of what you do with that money and power, but the fact that you're rich and the fact that you're powerful doesn't mean squat to the kingdom of God. For all, for all the kingdom cares, you could have all the money in the world and still be a complete loser. Everything is turned upside down. What criteria of success do you evaluate your life by? I was at a pastor's conference or pastor's meeting several months ago and a uh, pastor came up to me, and this is the kind of stuff pastors do. He's like, hey, Greg, how's it going at Woodland Hills? Uh, you know, are you experiencing some successes? And I said, you know, I, I am so happy right now about where things are going. It feels like we're in a groove. Uh, I just feel really good, better about being here than I ever have. And the pastor said, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Because uh, there's this rumor out there that, that you, you ticked off about 1,000 people last year, and it's hurting your offerings, and everything's going down. And I said, well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But see, I thought you asked how I was doing, I, I, how the church was doing. Uh, and I guess there's different criteria you could use there. But see, you know, Jesus, it seems to me that, that Jesus, you know, sometimes, boy, he was superhero. Crowds are all up there, and they're rooting and cheering, and, and he's just, you know, just the, the, the best show in town. Then he says something offensive to them in John chapter 6, and they all go away. And then later on, a couple months, they're back again cheering them on. But then three days later, they're saying, crucify the guy. Seems like crowds are kind of fickle. It's sort of been that way throughout history. But I don't see Jesus when the crowd's going away saying, oh, I'm a failure as a church planter. You know, I don't see him doing that. Uh, it seems like his criteria of success, success didn't have anything to do with that. Um, if you're thinking kingdom, well, here's what I would consider a success. I, I think that we're getting much clearer about our vision. I think there's much more of a unity around a vision that God's given to us, and, and I consider that to be a, a real good success. It, it seems to me that we're slowly becoming more of a giant Jesus, and, and, and that looks like the kingdom, so I think that is a success. Uh, we've got people, we don't have as much to give maybe, but, but key people are learning to give sacrificially. I think that's a success. We're serving more people in need than we ever have before. We're becoming more diverse ethnically and more diverse socioeconomically. Uh, and, and I consider that a success. Whatever looks like Jesus is the kingdom, and that's what we're all about. So I consider that a huge success. Amen. Last year, we, we uh, had a, a clothing drive for, for among uh, refugees, and we uh, gathered more clothes than we could give away. I think that's a huge success. I feel really good about that one. Collected a, a, enough food for about 500 to 1,000 meals for people who otherwise won't have those meals. That's what I would consider a good success. We're working with this inner city school, fixing it up, and now building a playground and, 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 and getting some money for it. And that I consider a, a, good, a good success. Uh, we've got people tutoring over there. That's a wonderful success. We've got small groups doing all sorts of inner city ministry. We've got one small group I just heard about uh, a couple days ago that's having birthday parties at a homeless shelter once a month because these kids don't get birthday parties. I consider that a beautiful success. We've got all, got all sorts of inner city ministries going on, uh, people serving in the homeless shelter, working at the dwelling place. Marriages are getting pe- healed. Healed. People are, are getting free from bondages. I consider that a huge success. Whatever looks like Jesus, whatever is the kingdom, that's the criteria for success. And whether you've got 5,000 people, 50,000 people, or five people, that's not a relevant consideration. The relevant consideration is are you doing what God's called you to do? And, and if it's the kingdom, it always looks like Calvary, serving people, dying for the very people that are crucifying him. So I told the guy, man, it's really successful. The number thing is kind of irrelevant, but man, it's successful in terms of growing in the kingdom. So the question I want us to ask ourselves is this. In the story that you live in between your ears on a day-by-day basis, what really is your criteria for success? Because we got to know that, that we're all to some degree brainwashed by a lie about what success is. 
How big's your house? How nice is your car? How many cars do you have? Do you ever got the nice cabin? Have you got the nice clothes? Have you got the yada, yada, yada? That's fine, but, but that's not the criteria for success. Not if you're looking at it from the kingdom. For all, from a kingdom perspective, that might just be a bunch of bondage you just gave there. You see, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, the criteria for success is are you living the kingdom? Are you taking what God has blessed you with, whether it's a lot or whether it's a little? And, and, and using it, yes, you enjoy it, but using it to invest in the lives of others. You can be here this morning and, and perhaps you're the president of the United States. I kind of doubt that one, but perhaps you're the president of the United States. Uh, or you could be here as an illegal immigrant. But from a kingdom perspective, that doesn't make any difference. Are you taking what God has given you, whether it's a lot or whether it's a little? And yes, you enjoy it, but are you investing it in the lives of others? And if you are, you are a hero. You maybe don't have a house, you don't have a car, you don't have much clothes, and you walked over here from the homeless shelter. But if you're living in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you, you are a hero. On the other hand, amen. Amen. On the other hand, you could be the CEO of, of Ford or something, and, and by a kingdom perspective, it's an utter failure if, in fact, you're all centered on yourself and you're not doing what God calls us to do. So the first principle is realize we're in an upside-down kingdom. Live with that spiritual lobotomy. See the world through kingdom eyes. The second point I want to bring out is this. And it has to do with a pervasive theme in Scripture. It's, it's the heart of God for the poor and oppressed. You can't read the Bible, honestly, and deny that throughout the Bible there is a strong, continual, intense motif of God siding with the underdog, of God caring about the underdog, of God having this incredible burden for those who are the losers by the success standards of the world. It's pervasive throughout the Bible. In fact, some scholars argue it's the single most dominant theme that runs throughout Scripture. We, we find it all over the place in the book of Luke. As we go throughout this book over the next three to 30 years, we're going to see over and over again that Luke is really intense on, on, on this particular theme. And we'll see that God places a tremendous responsibility on, on the part of his people to care for the poor and oppressed. There was uh, a, a doctrine that was created it's actually had something of a role throughout church history, but it's very prevalent today, that the church is called to minister to the spiritual needs of a person, but it's kind of government's job to take care of the physical needs. And I want to denounce that as an absolute demonic heresy. Uh, we're called to love people, and people are body, soul, and spirit. And from a scriptural perspective, it's the whole person that the church is called to minister to. The theme is pervasive throughout scripture, to the point where some people, some people have thought it's unfair it's like, God's not fair. How come? It seems like God likes poor people and oppressed people and marginalized people more than he likes wealthy people and people who have power. But I thought the Bible, I thought that in the Bible, God loves everybody and that God shows no partiality and shows no favoritism. And so it just doesn't seem fair that God you know, seems, seems to preference or pr uh, uh, prefer, have a preference for uh, the underdog. What do we make of that? And what I want to say is this. It's not that God loves one group over and above another, and it's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with riches, uh, with wealth, and with power. Because as we just saw, sometimes God makes people powerful and rich, precisely so they can now be an agent he uses to minister to the poor and oppressed. The problem, once again, is not the riches themselves or the power itself. But what that dominant theme throughout the Bible is about is this. In a fallen world, there is a fallen tendency for the people with money and power to use their money and power to get more money and power and to forget about what they're called to do with it. Thank God for wonderful exceptions, but the truth of the matter is that there is a sort of demonic pull to mammon and power that causes people to forget that everything they have comes from God, and while God wants them to enjoy it, he also wants them to give it away. It tends to be in this fallen world that people who get the money and power tend to forget about the poor and the powerless. They tend to use their wealth and power to their own advantage. They become proud in their innermost thoughts, as the passage says. And they begin to think that somehow they deserve the advantage that they have. Forgetting that they didn't have anything to do with being born where they were born and, and all of those sorts of things. Yes, they maybe worked hard for it, but they, uh, they forget that you could be born in a lot of places and work hard for it and not have what they have. And so forgetting that it all comes from God, they forget the so that. 
Praise God for wonderful, beautiful, godly exceptions where people keep that mind frame that this is all by the grace of God and it's here for me to enjoy, but also so that I may sow it. Thank God for those exceptions, but there is a demonic pull in the fallen world where people tend to forget that. And what God is saying is that as the kingdom shows up, people remember it and the thing begins to be reversed. Uh, The truth of the word of God and the truth of all statistics ever done on this show this. It tends to be the case, thank God for exceptions, but the more people have, the more they keep, the less they think about others. America as a nation, for example, from 1964 to 1994, in those 30 years, the gulf between the average standard of living in America and the average standard of living for the poorest 25% of people on the planet, in those 30 years, it grew fourfold. The gulf is four times bigger than it used to be 30 years ago. In that same period of time, the percentage of gross national product that the U.S. gave to helping those poorest 25% of people decreased tenfold. Now, the actual amount was larger because of inflation and other things, but the percentage was much, much less. Proving the biblical warning that it tends to be the case that the more you have, the less percentage you give away. George Barna did a study in 1996, and so this, may, this is old. Uh, things may have gotten a lot better since then, or they may have gotten worse for all I know. But in 1996, he showed that the average uh, Christian in America pretty much reflects the, the, the materialistic, consumeristic culture of America. The average American spends 98% of what they take home on themselves. 2% go to charities or, or churches. For evangelical Christians, it was a little better. Uh, they spent 96.5 to 97% on themselves. Uh, 3.5 to 3% went to churches and or charities. Uh, it te- and yet our standard of living is much bigger than it was 30 years ago, but the percentage we give away is about a third what it was 30 years ago. The warning is this, it tends to be the case that the more you have, the less you give away. Thank God for wonderful exceptions, but that tends to be the case. And here we have to be careful, because it's easy for us to, when we hear the word rich, we think, oh, those people who are two notches above us on the social strata, which is exactly what the people who are two notches below you are saying about you. And see, this is very relative here. We need to know that by global standards and by biblical standards, most of us in this room, not all, but many of us are very, very rich and in fact very, very powerful because we have say-so in this this world. This is a word for us to take very, very seriously. The bottom line is this, you guys, that whenever, and this is the biblical teaching here, whenever on the planet— There's one group that benefits at the expense of another group. It grieves the heart of God. Whenever there is injustice, it grieves the heart of God. When there's one group that has more than they need uh, and another group that has less than they need and those with more than they need don't use their advantage, privileged position to help those that have less than they need, it grieves the heart of God. Remember, what this whole show is about, what this whole kingdom, what this world is about, is that God is working to make the earth the dome in which he is king. That's called the kingdom of God. That's, the, that, that's what this whole thing is about. That's why we exist. And the dome in which God is king is the dome in which his character, his love, reigns. But see, injustice contradicts the love of God, so it grieves God. It's against the kingdom of God. Wherever there is dehumanizing poverty, it grieves God. Wherever there are people going hungry while there are other people who have more than they need, it grieves the heart of God. Wherever there is racism, it grieves the heart of God. Wherever there is systemic exploitation and oppression, it grieves the heart of God. Wherever there is unnecessary suffering while others are living in convenient and comfortable wealth, it grieves the heart of God. It's inconsistent with the love of God precisely because God is a God of universal love and shows no partiality. It is evidence of a demonically oppressed world. Now, God's solution isn't to make everyone equally poor and equally miserable. That's not, you know, like, sink to the lowest common denominator. God's solution is the solution we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God wants to bless, entrust some with a blessing. Yes, so they'll enjoy it because that's what's supposed to happen in the kingdom, but also sow that they may sow that. 
and use their extra to benefit those who have less than they need. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things and at all times you may overflow in every good work. Part of your blessing, the main part of your blessing is that you get to be a giver. And then God uses that to bring justice and, and bring the world greater in line with his character. The theme runs throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible. A lot of Western Christians miss it because it's to our advantage to miss it. And it's easy to overlook stuff that it is to your carnal advantage to overlook. But we need to look it straight in the face and stare at it. Let me give you one example, one verse. Could deal with 10,000 here. I'll give you one. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. Here the Israelites are, are doing their typical fast, and that's a good thing. Um, they're, they're fasting from food one day a week. Uh, and that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. But then the Lord says this. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one, one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? So I mean, this was a sign of humility back in the ancient world. You put sackcloth and ashes on and you bow your head like a reed and so you'd walk around like this. And, you know, and what you're doing is like he's showing everybody how religious you are. I'm suffering for Jesus. I'm fasting today, you know. <laughs> Haven't eaten for a week, but it's for a good cause for Jesus. And the Lord is saying, knock it off. Stop! Stop, 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 stop! It's irritating God. Because God says, is that, you think that's a, like an end in and of itself? Like, I'm impressed with that? No, 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 no. Here's the fast I'm, I've called you to. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. It's so easy not to notice them because it's to our carnal advantage not to notice them. You know, it's, it's like life is going fine, so we just kind of look the other way. It's, you know, we, we just don't notice our own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth. When you do this, when you, when you clothe the naked and feed the hungry and give shelter to the homeless, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. And then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Let me make four points about this passage. It's a very important passage. First of all, fasting. Fasting is whenever you abstain from something that you could enjoy, but you abstain from it for a higher purpose. The most common way is, uh, is food. People abs uh, abstain from food for a, for a meal or for a day or for longer uh, for, for a higher purpose. It, it, causes, it, it grows us spiritually. You can sometimes discern the will of God more. It helps you pray more effectively. There's a lot of wonderful spiritual benefits to fasting. I encourage the practice. But what the Lord is saying here is the real fast that he's calling them to is to abstain from things they could enjoy for the sake of the poor and the oppressed and the hungry and the needy. In fact, God is saying, until you're doing that kind of a fast, I'm really not very interested in your food fast because that's not an end in and of itself. Uh, in fact, it's starting to really tick me off. The fast I call you to is for you who have more than you need, this fast from some of that for the sake of those who have less than they need. This is so important to God, I think it would be absolutely exegetically impossible for me to be imbalanced on stressing it. I don't think I could possibly overstress it. Think about this. In Matthew 25, I don't have time to turn to it right now, but I encourage you to go home and read it. Start with verse 31. It's a scene from the Last Judgment. And here the Lord Jesus Christ, he so identifies with the poor and the oppressed, the outcasts of the world, that what we do to them, we're doing to him. And so he says to this one group of people, come and enter into the kingdom of my father. And they're kind of confused because they weren't all that religious apparently. And Jesus says, well, no, but see, I was cold and, and you gave me clothes because I didn't have any clothes. And when I was outside, you, you brought me in. And when I was hungry, you gave me food. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was a criminal, you visited me in prison. When everybody else is saying, you're the problem with society, you dared to risk the, ruining your own reputation by befriending me while I was in prison. And insofar as you did it to the least of these, the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. You, you know my heart. You may not know your theology and all that, but you know my heart. Yeah, we, you know, we're, we're tight. Come into the kingdom of my Father. 
And then he turns to this other group who are apparently the religious people because they were casting out demons in his name and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus says, you don't know me. You, you, yeah, you got your theology, but you don't know me because I was really hungry and you had extra food and you didn't share it with me. And I, I was naked, but you didn't, you didn't take an extra shirt and give it to me. And then when I was in prison, you were the ones hollering the loudest about, about how I should be judged. You didn't befriend me. You were too worried about your own reputation. And, and uh, when I was walking the streets at night all alone, and you didn't open up your house to me or provide shelter for me, you, you don't know the heart of God. This is so close to the heart of God that what happens to them, he considers happening to himself. He identifies with them. This is the, the heart of God. It really means it's true what, what, what Mother Teresa said when she said, we need to learn to see God in the eyes of the poor of the world. The second point is, is this. God clearly from this passage and throughout the Bible expects his people to be the ones to take responsibility in meeting these needs. His people. This is not the job of government. This is the job of kingdom people. Now as we side with them, as we, Jesus identifies with them, we have to identify with them. And as we identify with them, yes, we want to call resources to their advantage. Uh, these are the people, you know, they don't have a lot of political clout and they don't have a lot of, you know, money to influence politicians. So they're the ones who usually get unnoticed uh, by, by the governments. Their side of the levy doesn't get reinforced, but the wealthy side of the levies do get reinforced, if you know what I'm talking about. And so it's, it's good for us to call attention to that and to be saying these are, notice the unnoticeable. I saw a magazine cover this week where it had a person of a, a, an African-American mother and her child, and they had been devastated by Katrina, and they're both crying. It was a heart-gripping picture. And, and the title of it said, Can You See Me Now? Can you see me now? And so part of the job as the church is just, uh, is just to call attention to that. These people who don't have a voice on their own, yes, that's part of it. But our job isn't, calling attention to it, our job isn't now to lean on government to do that, and the Democrats and Republicans will fight about the right way to do that. You know, that's, that's going to happen. Our job is to call attention to that. But most of all, to not think, to default, to shrug and say, well, that's government's job. No, it's, it, feeding the hungry is the job of, of kingdom people. Clothing the naked is the job of kingdom people. Housing the homeless is the job of kingdom people. Siding with the oppressed is the job of kingdom people. Mary in her song, she says, God will, will send the, the hungry away filled. But see, God doesn't usually do that unilaterally. Almost always he uses people to do that. We are, after all, his body on earth. So God wants to do it, but he wants to do it through you and through me. As we pray for folks in this situation, and increasingly, praise God, they are part of Woodland Hills Church. But as we pray for folks in this situation, understand that the answer to that prayer might be you. Be open to that. God often wants to, you, he puts a prayer in your heart because he wants you to be the answer to that prayer. We're the bride, we're the people of God. And so we are the ones to take responsibility for that, not the government. Third point is this. Understand that when we do this, when we live in this fast, this sacrifice, it is an act of worship. Because what we're doing, we're doing not just for God's people, but we're doing to the Lord himself. That's what Matthew 25 is all about. We are ascribing worth to God by ascribing worth to these people, by how we live, by how we sacrifice. It is an act of worship. In fact, from Isaiah 58's perspective, God is saying this other kind of worship, when you worship God with song and you worship God with, you know, all sorts, that's, that's necessary, it's good, it's wonderful. God delights in the praises of his people. But if that isn't paralleled by a worship in lifestyle, that wor the first worship just ticks him off. No, 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 no. First get this fasting down and then put on your sackcloth and asses and, and worship me in the religious way. But I, I want a lifestyle worship first. And the fourth thing is, is, is this. The passage promises, and, and get this, Holy Spirit, open our eyes for this, that when the people of God fast in this way, revival breaks out. He says this, if you clothe, clothe the naked and feed the hungry and take care of, of the homeless, then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You will be surrounded by the glory of the Lord. Praise God. 
Uh, oh, Lord, we need to have your glory all around us. You want to see revival? Would you like to see the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God coming down on Woodland Hills Church and on the Twin Cities and on the nation? Do you think we need healing in this land? I, th I think we do. Uh, do. Do you think we need restoration in this land? I think we do. Would you like to see people coming to, to Christ by the throngs? Would you like to see prostitutes and tax collectors just uh, wanting to hang out with the people of God? Would you like to see a burning excitement and commitment uh, being burned Birth in the people of God and people getting freed from their bondage of religion and starting to live the, ki the kingdom, the radical kingdom lifestyle. Would you like to see revival? This passage is saying the key to revival here, the key to revival is not what a lot of religious people think it is, taking stands on this and that pet, pet particular issues. The, the key to revival is start living the kingdom lifestyle, Calvary lifestyle in a way that translates into your pocketbook. And it translates in how you see the poor and how you see the needy and how you see the oppressed. See the people that, that the society, the, the affluent in the society tend not to see and do something about it. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Amen. Uh, Christ fasted from his divine prerogatives for our sake. We're supposed to fast from some of our prerogatives in this world for the sake of the people that, that he identifies with. And then the, the passage says, then the light of God will break forth and, and it will be, a, oh, it will be a beacon of light. Holy Spirit, help us to lock this in. Let me close by giving four very practical tips on how to do this. Tip number one, really not tips. I, it's a little stronger than that. No, it's not like, you know, you might want to someday get around. No, you know what? I, four commands. <laughs> How's that? Okay, commands is too strong. Uh, something in between a, a tip and a command. What? Applications. Four applications. Yes, good. Okay, good. Four very, very, very important applications. Number one, educate yourself about poverty and about racism and about oppression. Most affluent people in the culture are not really aware and do not fully appreciate the extent of this issue in America, let alone around the world. Start reading on it. Uh, start investigating. Uh, see, it is to our cardinal advantage not to notice because when you notice, then you, you, there's a part of you that says, oh, I got to do something about it. But see, knowing that you are supposed to do something about it, go out of your way to notice. Go out of your way to notice. Read. Uh, one good place to start is a book by Ron Sider called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Very, very good book. Our, my small group read this book about six years ago and it rocked our world. It, it, it changed our lifestyle to some extent. Uh, read on this. You might take a short-term missions trip. I took a trip to Haiti about 10 years ago, and, and that also rocked my world. It, it didn't give me new information, but, but it impacted me. It, it's like you, I, you, we, we've, we've got to let ourselves feel the pain of this. Go out of our way to feel the pinch so that it, it results in a transformation in our life. Educate yourself about this. Number two, take your finances captive to Jesus Christ. Take your finances captive. I just mean get it to line up with, with making him Lord of your life. Most Americans live 10 to 20% beyond their means. That's why we always feel tight. And no matter how much you make, we live 10 to 20% beyond our means, and we wonder where the money went. Most Americans don't know. They know where their, 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 the, basic, you know, the basic bills go, the house and whatever. But when it comes to any extra spending, they, most don't know really where it goes, which is why it doesn't feel like extra spending to them. They don't know. Most of us don't know. That wouldn't be bad if it was your money. But as kingdom people, we know that it's not our money. Uh, it's his money. And he, he gives it to us to, yes, enjoy, but also to give away. And we're his stewards. And that means we're accountable to him. We remember the story. Some of you know the story of the, 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 the talents. Uh, modern application would be that, you know, what if I gave Ike here? Ike, I said, you know, Ike, you know, Ike wants to serve me. <laughs> Go with it here, right? And, and, uh, uh, and I say, right, here's $100. Now, here's $100. I want you to take $50 and take your wife out and have a night on time. I want you to enjoy $50. Do whatever you want. But the other 50 you know, my, you, you know what I believe in, and you know what I'm about in this world, and I'm entrusting you with that to now invest that and do a lot of good with it and, and, you know, and come back and report to me a month later. A month later, he comes back. He says, oh, we really had a great dinner. I said, oh, that's wonderful. I'm very happy. That's part of the reason why I gave it to you. But what about the other, the other you know, money that, that you're supposed to invest? What happened to it? And what if I goes, oh, I don't know. 
you know, gosh, it just goes so quickly, doesn't it? It just seems to flow out. I, I feel like a, a, one of those ATM machines. You know, I, oh, it's just really wild. <laughs> it's really wild living in America. I'm not going to be really happy with him. Now, I'm not trying to get too heavy here, but this is God's money. We've got to get our, a handle around our finances. I challenge you to swim upstream in this culture. It's not a coincidence that most of us live 10 to 20% beyond our means because there's systematic brainwashing that goes on around us all the time to condition us to live 10 to 20% beyond our means. It's called the American dream. It's called capitalism. This is how the system works. And it really does work very, very well. But as kingdom people, we're not here to enforce an economic system. We're here to swim upstream and do the work of God. We've got to debug our brain of, of, of the lies that we're told. Start bringing your, 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 your finances captive to Jesus Christ. You might want to take this course that we offer about once a month or once every two months on, on uh, I forget what it's called, but, but, but getting a grip on your finances. It's a way to bring sanity to your finances so, so you know where this stuff is going. And yes, you enjoy it, but you have stuff left over to do the work of God. Try living 10% instead of living 10% over your means. Make it a goal to live 10% beneath your means. That's kind of a biblical pattern, you know, 10% going to the work of God and stuff. And then at, when you're at 90, maybe God will say, hey, I bet we can go to 80%. So you're no longer, you're enjoy, and just enjoying off of, you know, the, the 100%, but, but now 20% is going to other means. And you might find, and this isn't a magical formula or something here, okay, but it is a biblical principle that you might find, you all of a sudden realize that when you're living on 80% of what you take home, investing the other 20% in the kingdom, you might find you actually have more to enjoy living at 80% than you did when you were living at 120%. You see, because now you're walking in the zone of God's economy. Now, if you're not blessed financially, you're going to be blessed in other ways. I do know that God honors his promise. The blessing is going to come back on you. But get, be, get san bring sanity to your finances. Bring them captive to Jesus Christ. Third thing, fast for those in need by giving to ministries you trust. As you get a grip on your finances and you say, How? You, know, you might have to simplify here. You might have to downsize here. Uh, but as you do that, as, you, as you, God leads you in a fast to, to, to say, here's what we enjoy, here's what we sow that, as you do that, give to ministries that you trust. Uh, make sure that most of the dollars you're giving away are going to the causes that they're supposed to go to. There's a lot of scam ministries out there. So the trust factor is very, very important. Um, I'll just tell you that at Woodland Hills here, a part of our budget is going towards just that. More and more in, in the body here, there are more and more needs. Our budget here is about doubling every year for, the, for these kind of needs, uh, helping people in these kind of situations. And so just know that contributing to the church here does that. But we also are in, in, in relationship with a multitude of ministries. We, we, there's 27 different uh, missionaries that we support and a number of other mission, missionaries. If you go to the missions kiosk out in the gathering area, you'll find a list of all these different ministries. All of them have this component to it because we simply refuse to align ourselves with any ministry that's about saving souls but not about addressing the needs of the hungry and the poor, the, the oppressed. All of these ministries. So you, go and check these out. There's Co-Fed back there. There's Providence back there. There's Here's Life Inner City. A number of ministries that are extensions of Woodland Hills Church. And, and just pray, God, how am I supposed to steward your money vis-a-vis -vis these ministries? And God will lead you as to which ones you're supposed to jump on, uh, on board with. I encourage you to do that. Or there may be other ministries out there that God leads you to. If you have a heart to fast for the poor and the oppressed in the world, he'll lead you. <laughs> He's looking for people like this. He'll lead you into the ministry you're supposed to be a part of. And the fourth thing, and I close with this, fast for those in need through service. Now, we're all called to different ministries, but I encourage you to consider this through service, not just through finances. Here again, there's many opportunities that we, this giant Jesus called Wilderness Church, many opportunities to get involved in ways that are going to positively impact the poor, uh, the homeless, those in shelters, those who are disadvantaged, those who are systematically oppressed. Um, Mary Anderson in our care area. There's a number of ministries that, that you can get involved in to help all folks in that area. We, we're in partnership with uh, The Lift, Sandra Unger's ministry, where she's working with inner city kids. You can be a volunteer in that ministry. Our small groups, as I mentioned earlier, are doing some tremendous things. Being part of the small group ministry uh, uh, is a way of, of getting involved and impacting the city. And if you're, in a, if you're in a small group that's not doing that, I encourage you to talk to Charlene Knudsen. 
uh, who's kind of the coordinator of that, to plug you into a project that is out there. The refuge ministry, we've got more and more people. This is one of the successes. More and more people come into church who otherwise would never possibly step into church. And the needs are tremendous. And, and you might, God might lead you to be a part of that. I don't know how. I don't know the details, but I do know this. If you have a heart to fast for those in need, God will lead you financially and in terms of your time and your talents and your giftedness to invest in them. And then you'll find this in one way or another, whether it's financially or, or emotionally or whatever. When you give, it comes back to you. Good measure, pressed down, running over. The more you give, the more God gives you to give. It's, it's the principle of the kingdom. Know that everything about you, your finances, your gifts, your brains, your talent, your personality, your position, all that you have, is for you to enjoy. Enjoy it. I don't want to be guilting anyone out about enjoying stuff. No, that's, that's God's in- intent. But e- the even more fundamental reason is so that. So that now you may abound in every good work. This is close to the heart of God. And as kingdom people, it's got to be close to our heart. I'm going to seal this message with a quick prayer. Uh, if you're here t- this morning and you have any need that you'd like to have prayed for, uh, whether it's a marriage thing or, or, or maybe it's a poverty thing, I don't know, uh, we have prayer teams up here and I encourage you to come forward and, and get whatever prayer you need. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you, you're not part of this kingdom, I'm so glad you're here this morning. Becoming part of the kingdom is simply a matter of turning over the, the, the driver's seat of your life to Jesus, making him Lord of your life. And if you'll come up here to my right and your left uh, at this table up here, uh, we've got some free literature we would like to give you and explain to you how easy that is to get started so you can start doing this kingdom thing because this is where life is all about. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. Holy Spirit, seal this message. Seal this message in our heart. Holy Spirit, Help us not to have this to be a message that goes in one ear and trickles out the other ear by the next morning. Holy Spirit, you are Lord of our life, and so we give you permission to haunt us on this one. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. We give you permission to bug us on this one. Help us to swim upstream in this very narcissistic, self-centered Uh, world, Lord. We acknowledge that most of us in this room, some more than others, are profoundly wealthy and powerful by global standards. Help us, Lord, to enjoy that and to use it. To use it. To sow that, God, we may minister to those. Show your character and your heart for justice and and ministering to the needs of others, Lord. Uh, Do it through us, Lord, to use what we have to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. Go forth and build the kingdom. God bless you. We love you.